You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Hello. Hey. Just a bit of fiddling required. Well, hello and good morning again. Hey, I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be wrong. And this is something to get really excited about. Could this possibly be the first ever Sunday since Federation? Since Federation, that we have had a Prime Minister who was born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. Could it be? I, I mean, the, the, the applause then doesn't reflect the number of prayer meetings I've been in where we've said, give us a Christian Prime Minister. You know, I mean, if I had a shilling for every, a dollar for every time, every time I've heard that in a prayer meeting... I wouldn't be wearing Roger David jackets. You know, Armani. You know. Folks, I think, I th- you know what? I think we should be on our feet cheering. This, this, let's, let's not get excited too much. Let's not go, okay, now we'll show them. If that starts rising up in you, rebuke it. Get rid of it. Okay. It's a new season for sure, but it may not look like what you think. Amen. God always does a new thing above and beyond what we can ask or think. And that, if, if you're not excited about the Prime Minister, get excited about that, yeah. Okay, hey, look, I want to speak to you this morning. I want to pick up a thread that is right through the Bible. It um, particularly comes home to roost in the poetry books in the middle, but it's a thread that has been right there. Um, I've been sort of, sort of in and out of church since I was a little kid, and I've noticed that what emphasis church had has changed from time to time. When I was a little kid, it was all about what you must not do. You can't do this if you want to be a Christian. That was when I was a little kid in the 60s. And in the 80s, it became what you must do. You must do these things to be a Christian. You must you know, share your faith. You must read your Bible. You must do. And it was almost like if you didn't do those things... You, could be, you couldn't be a Christian. You couldn't be a full-on Christian. Now, I, I think the season's changed. We're into something that's a little bit more what God had in mind from the, first, from, from the outset. And that is to have a body of people who function in intimate union with God, who day-to-day have an intimate relationship and live out of that rather than out of a set of rules of what you can't do and what you must do. This is getting closer to God's eternal purpose for the church. See, his, his ultimate purpose was to create a family for himself and a bride for his son. We see that terminology in Scripture, the bride of Christ. Now, gentlemen, don't get upset. Don't get, don't get too toey. If women can be sons of God, then we can suck it up and be the bride of Christ, Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair enough. But God ordained that he would give his son an eternal companion. And we, we form part of that, individually and collectively. An eternal companion that would be equally yoked to him forever. And that we would help him rule and reign on the earth. Yeah? Get a little bit excited. Come on, come on, talk to me, talk to me. See, to understand our original identity, and it's important that we do, we've got to understand this collective that we belong to, and, and see the church in her bridal identity, 
rather than what's wrong with it. Yeah, we, we need to see, our, see us as part of something that is big, to see the eternal companion of the Son of God walk in full partnership with him. That's what God's purpose is, to walk in daily intimate connection as individuals and to bring heaven to earth to steward God's intention on the earth. That's what it is. That's what bridal purpose is. The idea of the church as a bride, it, it springs up in the New Testament, and it's, it's fairly heavy in the book of Revelation. But in the Old Testament, there are these pictorial prophetic scriptures that describe, actually describe the relationship, the daily come and go, the daily to and fro of relationship with us as individuals between us and God. It's, it's really actually quite pictorial when you look at it. And I want to lay a foundation this morning by reading one of those passages. It's a fairly lengthy passage, but it's worth reading. See, this passage is found in the book of Proverbs, and it's normally treated as, and it's sometimes headed, given a subtitle of the virtuous wife. Okay, so we're going to Proverbs 31. Some of you would already know that. The virtuous wife, the virtuous woman in a lot of versions of the Bible. But what we actually have here is a Hebrew acrostic poem. Ten verses, alphabetical in structure. Each verse begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew language. The idea here is that this woman is so wonderful that she exhausts the the language. There's no more words left to say about her. This woman described here is devout, she's pious, she's almost perfect, almost unattainable, but to me, she's a little bit boring. Yeah. I, if anyone's got the perfect wife, are they not perhaps just a little bit boring? But what if it's about more than a perfect wife? I mean, I have, a, I have, a, I have an almost perfect wife. We'll talk about her in a while, St. Nerida. <laughs> but what if it's more about... A, a perfect wife. More if it, what if it's not about a perfect wife? What if it's about a perfect bride? A bride. A bride prepared. A picture of the church. When I read this to you in the passage, uh, Passion Translation, you'll see it on the screen, you'll see how this comes out. Because I think, although it, it, although it was actually about probably uh, this unattainable woman that, you know, that doesn't really exist, the, the perfect wife... It is prophetically a picture of the church in this season. Tweak the context. And instead of making it about a a scrupulous woman, we make it about a mass of humans that together form something that is great and grand and never, ever boring. So let's read it together. Let's go to the radiant bride is is the heading in this version. Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 10 Who could ever find a wife like this one? She is a woman of strength and mighty valor. She's full of wealth and wisdom. The price paid for her was greater than many jewels. Her husband has entrusted his heart to her, for she brings him the rich spoils of victory. All throughout her life, she brings him what is good and not evil. Remember, the husband is Jesus. The bride is us. Verse 13, she searches out continually to possess that which is pure and righteous. She delights in the work of her hands. She gives out revelation truth to feed others. She's like a trading ship 
bringing divine supplies from the merchant. Even in the night season, she arises and sets food on the table for hungry ones in her house and for others. She sets her heart upon a nation and takes it as her own, carrying it within her. She labors there to plant the living vines. She wraps herself in strength, might, and power in all her works. She tastes and experiences a better substance, and her shining light will not be extinguished no matter how dark the night. She stretches out her hand to help the needy, and she lays hold of the wheels of government. She is known by her extravagant generosity to the poor, for she always reaches out her hands to those in need. Can you see it? She is not afraid of tribulation, for all her household is covered in the jewel garments of righteousness and grace. Her clothing is beautifully knit together, a purple gown of exquisite linen. Her husband is famous and admired by all, isn't he? Sitting as the venerable judge of his people, even her works of righteousness she does for the benefit of her enemies. Bold power and glorious majesty are wrapped around her as she laughs with joy over the latter days. Her teachings are filled with wisdom and kindness and loving instructions pours from her lips. She watches over the ways of her household and meets every need they have. Her sons and daughters arise in one accord to extol her virtues and her husband arises to speak of her in glowing terms. I don't know about you, but I feel better for coming already. That's the church. We may see our failings, we may see what's wrong, we may see the gaps, but that's not what God sees. If that's his edit, I'll take it any day. Yeah? This is a prophetic picture of the church. Instead of being an organisation or an institution or even a movement, the church becomes something far more significant and impacting. It becomes a bride, a full and intimate partner with Jesus. That's exciting. That's what God always had in mind, was a full and intimate partner. Let me tell you about, he tried to achieve this all throughout the Old Testament. Let me tell you about Israel's second worst day in their history. Because you know what their worst day was? Their worst day was when they crucified Jesus and said, his blood be on us and our children. That was their worst day. And there's probably a few other pretty bad days. But okay, among, among... Israel's worst days is this day. But Israel hails it, the Jewish religion today, hails it as a great day on Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the Torah. The Jewish religion hails that as a great day, but actually it was second best. You see, the nation of Israel had come out of Egypt. They were slaves for 400 years and they come to Mount Sinai and God wants to meet with him and he makes them an offer. He says, I want you to be a nation of priests. I want you to be my personal possession, my personal treasure. A nation of priests, think about that. Priests don't fight. They don't go to war. If God was going to clean out the promised land, he was going to have to do it another way because Israel would be a nation of priests and priests don't fight. So he would have had to do it another way and he had planned to do that. The Old Testament talks about it. It talks about, he said, I will send in hornets they would have to be hornets the size of helicopters to get rid of the, the races that were in there. But he had a plan. He had a plan to do it without bloodshed on the, on the part of the Israeli nation. But they said, oh, hang on. We're, we're seeing you up on a mountain and there's thunder and lightning and smoke and you are a bit scary. So we might just have a mediator. How about you tell Moses 
what to do and he'll tell us. Because we're actually still slaves and we like to be told what to do. That's what they said. And so they opt for something that was less than God's best. They opt for something that was less than a personal treasure, an intimate relationship. They opted for a mediator. Everything came through one man. That was their, I, I still think, the worst day in their history because they could have had something that was precious and they had something that was second rate. See, but this concept of intimate oneness, is just, it just goes right throughout the Bible. Solomon, who we're going to hear a lot from today. Solomon, in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5, it's a well-worn verse. You should know it really well. It says, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. The problem with this passage is the word that is translated there as no is, is, uh, is the Hebrew word yada or yada if you want to be ochre about it but yada the Hebrew word yada and this this actually carries meaning that that really should impact on us every time we hear it it means unmediated oneness it means relationship without anybody else there to put restrictions on it, without anyone else there to make rules. It's virtually like there are no rules in this relationship. Let's just have oneness, whatever it takes. Now, that word yadah is, is seen throughout the Old Testament. It's translated in a different way. It's translated in a sexual contest, cotton text. Abraham yadahed Sarah, and she bore a son. It's translated as no. And, uh, and so it's seen throughout the, the Old Testament as the word no. But once you're invited into Yadah, this intimate oneness with God, everything else must be second best. So you wonder why Israel backed away from it. But we see, we see people backing away from it every day. We see people opting in, in churches today, probably in this one. No, I'll just, I'll turn up, I'll serve, but I don't want the daily time spent, the daily vulnerability of coming and meeting with God in intimate relationship. See, this scares, it excites a lot of women, but it scares a lot of blokes. You know, women are more acquainted with intimacy, but blokes, they sort of just, you can have that intimacy stuff. I'm going to stand over here and have a bit of a scratch. See, for guys, it's not, it's not easy to get your head around this stuff. Being intimate with a, a God who has a, a, a male persona in Scripture. But it's something we have to get over, gentlemen. Okay? Give me another come on. It's something we have to get over because we are invited into this Yadah relationship. Jesus talked about it a lot in the book of John. He said, he said this in, uh, in John chapter 17, uh, verse 21. He said, he's praying to God and he's talking about his disciples. He, he says, I pray for them to become one with us so that the world will recognize that you sent me, to become one with us. And he's, he talked about how he was one with the Father and how he offers to us the same relationship that he has with the Father. Jesus said it. He wants it. He wants that for us. 
He wants a relationship that is as close as the relationship of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He communicated it in a way where he, he illustrated it for people all the time through his parables. He, cre- he, he illustrated God as someone who wanted relationship rather than ticking boxes. That, see, he, he presented God as someone who you couldn't actually please by performance. And so he, he presented God as a relational God, not a behavioral God. And then again, in John chapter 15, he says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you desire, and it'll be done for you. If my words abide in you, that's not talking about the Bible just on its own. Because that word that's translated as word is the word rima. We have the logos word, which is the established word of God, the printed word of God, but we have the rima word, which is the freshly spoken word of what I heard from him this morning. That's the rhema word. That means that we have to check in with him regularly to hear what he's saying, to hear that freshly spoken word. If my words abide in you, what does that look like? Husbands and wives who've been married for a long time, they, they actually know what that means. And I told you I was going to talk about St. Nerida, but <laughs> I've known her since she was 16 and I was 19. We got married when I was 22 and, and uh, she was 19. I went to church and a visiting speaker said, how many of you have teenagers at home? And I put my hand up. <laughs> but while we remain individuals, there's this space that we both occupy. After, after nearly 40 years together, we start to think the same and we start to speak the same. Sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. We don't even have to tell the whole joke anymore. We only have to tell the first line and we just laugh. (laughs) Because we know we have a unique shared experience. We have folklore together. Sometimes my words come out of her mouth. I think, that's my phrase. What are you saying it for? And the same thing with, with me. Old married people understand this. You can communicate with a mere glance. And you know you're in trouble, you know. It, it's kind of uncanny, but it's a picture of what Jesus was talking about, if my words abide in you. And so now we pick up the thread and we take it into uncharted waters, at least for me. I swore that I would never, ever speak from the Song of Solomon, but we're headed there, folks. So fasten your seatbelts. This is... A, This is the most intimate book of the Bible, Song of Solomon. I saw a tweet from the church curmudgeon who I follow, who's a grumpy old bloke who criticizes churches, and he said, I'm hoping that the the title Snog of Solomon is just a typo. (laughs) So what we have here in the Song of Solomon is an eight-chapter-long love story. It's, It's presented in a poem or a song, It's called the Song, or it's called the Song of Songs, or it's called the Song of Solomons, depending on Solomon, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading. Now, what happens is the four first four chapters are about our inheritance in Jesus. The second four chapters are about his inheritance 
in us. And it turns on one verse in the middle. And we're going to look at that verse a little bit later on. But what this is about is it, it, it gives the ebb and flow, the emotions of relationship. And it deals specifically with God's emotions. It presents Solomon and the love of his life, a Shulamite woman. Solomon was raised in the palace. The Shulamite woman is, is, comes from an agricultural center of Israel. You have to understand that to understand the, the imagery that they use when they talk to each other. And, and, and Solomon, it, it is about that. It is about a relationship between a man and a woman. And there are, yes, there is a sensual side to it. But we're not going to deal with that this morning. You can deal with that in your own time. But we're going to look at the imagery here that presents Jesus and his church, us. Jesus as Solomon, us as the Shulamite woman. Now, the, the, um, the connection here is what does God call Jesus? He calls him, all throughout the New Testament, the son of David. Who was Solomon? He was the son of David. So there's, there's a connection for you. But there are those two basic camps of interpretation. One, that it's a, it's, it's a relationship between Solomon and a Shulamite woman, and the other one, that it's a relationship between Jesus and his church. They're both right. One is immediate, the other is prophetic. And that's how we need to see it. Solomon himself was no stranger to this concept of oneness. When God appeared to him in a dream and said, you're going to rule Israel, what's the one thing that you want? We, we all say that he asked for wisdom. He actually didn't. He asked for an understanding heart. But that's just a way of saying it. He asked for Shema in the Hebrew language. And that is the ability to process as God processed, to hop into the same space as God and process with him. What he's asking for is oneness. Yeah? So, let's get started. I want to take three concepts from the Song of Solomon that I think will bring us into a greater understanding of the way God moves in relationship with us. The ebbs and flows, and I'm going to use the Passion Translation once again. The first one I'm going to take is from the Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 12. It says this, As the king surrounded me at his table, the sweet fragrance of my praise perfume awakened the night. See, there's a key to a relationship. When we come in this morning, what do we do first? We, we start to sing praise. Praise awakens the night. It awakens the atmosphere. The atmosphere changes when we praise. The Bible says, I will enter his courts with thanksgiving. I will enter, I will enter, I can't remember the verse now. I'll enter, anyway, I'll come in with thanksgiving and enter with praise. Yeah, that one, that verse. And it's, it's, it's when we choose to look past our own situation and praise and focus on him and focus on what's good about him. And that's what we did this morning. We come in here with praise. Before that, it's a building. It's a building with seats and it's nothing else. But when we start to praise, it becomes the church empowered. We begin to feel his presence. We begin to feel his touch. We start to think about his purpose and his process and why we're actually here. And then there's the entwining of those two purposes and our purpose becomes his, ours and his joined together. But you need time and you need an approach. You need a way 
of meeting him, a way of approaching God on a daily basis, to be in his presence without an agenda. I'm not talking about praying to him for your family and for your friends and for your school and for your workplace and for your city and for your country and your politicians. I'm not talking about that. That is something separate from this. This is connection for the purpose of relationship, for God being with you and we being with God. Yeah? I have... I have a way of doing this. I have a, I have a, a, a worship pra- uh, playlist on Spotify on my phone that I just plug in. And if I have a moment, I can, I can connect with God anywhere. I can close my eyes. I can sit down on the pool deck. I can sit in my car. I put this in, headphones in, and, I, and I've got this, this playlist. And this playlist is, is it's this hectic, these hectic, intimate confronting worship songs that really just, they, they tear at you. You know, they, they, they tell you about how God wants to be in relationship with you all the time. And it's just coming at you, coming at you. For, for, it goes on for probably an hour, this, this list. And I set that up and I, just, and, I, and I just live in that for an hour or so. And, just, and, and feel God, feel his presence, feel his purpose, hear his voice. If I need to say anything, I do. Sometimes God will invite you to ask him a question. That's, that's, that's one of the ways he operates. Ask me about this. Ask me about that. When you're in intimate relationship, that's one of the things that happens. When you approach God, don't evaluate yourself. You'll find too many things wrong. In your mind, you'll never qualify for his friendship. You'll live with the awareness of what doesn't work instead of what does work. When you go into him to, to meet with him, you can disqualify yourself, not as a believer, not as someone who's loved by God and, and, and is going to heaven, but you can disqualify yourself as someone who, can, who is worthy to be in the presence of God because we are worthy. At the end of the day, Jesus' blood paid for that. Be impressed with his significance rather than your own insignificance as you approach him. Be agendaless, come out of adoration. That's why we come with praise. We talk to him about him and we we put our own agenda aside. Don't go to get something for ministry. Don't go to get a good idea to talk about at Life Group tonight. Go to be with him, with him and him with you. We have to develop that willingness to spend time without asking for anything. The issue is to develop a sense of his presence that, that, that we can find in a quiet space, but then we can recognize in the day-to-day come and go of what we do when he speaks to us. I don't think that our connection time should be looking for a specific outcome. There's a lot of benefits that come as a byproduct just to spending time with God and a lot of results. But none of the results are the reason. The reason is he's worthy. The whole idea is to come out of adoration and affection. Silence the negative voice. Silence that voice that when you, you know, if, some, if something that's happened in the day is nagging at you, it's just silence it. It's like, go away can't let it get to accusation so don't focus on the negative voice and then by that time all that you've got left is you and God takes pleasure in you so that's the first thing to come 
with praise. Praise awakens the night. It unlocks things. It unlocks purpose and it unlocks presence. The next thing is to embrace the testing that comes through relationship. Next verse we're going to look at is in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 16. It says this, and it's, it, this is a lot longer than what it might appear in the New King James. Then may your awakening breath blow upon my life until I am fully yours. Breathe upon me with your spirit wind. Stir up the sweet spice of your life within me. Spare nothing as you make me your fruitful garden. Hold nothing back until I release your fragrance. Come walk with me as you walked with Adam in your paradise garden. Come taste the fruits of your life in me. What she's actually asking for, and this is the Shulamite woman talking to Solomon, what she's actually asking for here is, is for adversity, is for testing, the testing of relationship. In the King James Version, it says, Awake, O north wind. The north wind in that geographical location was the wind of adversity. And then she says, And come, O south wind. And that was the wind of blessing. So she wanted to experience the wind of of adversity so she could experience the wind of blessing. She invites the north wind, which is the adverse wind, to, to, to actually ask for testing. She's asking for adversity to come to see what it might produce in her character. She's asking to see if the next season that God has for her, if her character can be developed to support that. And you see that. Isn't it amazing how God uncovers the unhelpful things in your life. He uncovers those things that are holding you back, that, that sort of have lodged in your spirit and cause you to be disrupted and uh, to be disassociated, disconnected from his presence. I, I, I experienced this in a, in, a, in a really incredible way just last year. I'm, I'm someone who doesn't like to carry grudges. You know, that's not good. We don't like to be, you know, I, I, I test myself from time to time and say, do I actually hate anyone? No, I, I can't think of anyone that, that, I actually, that I'm actually at odds with at the moment. I'm, you know, I want to I live free of that. I want to walk in a spirit of forgiveness. I want to I live like that. And last year, I went, I went to the first test match at the Gabba. And I'm sitting there. You know, it's something I've done since I was 10 years old. First test match of an Ashes summer. It's just wonderful. And, and, I've, and I've, I'm sitting there, I've got there early, and I'm, and I'm just enjoying the ambience of the whole thing, you know, and uh, Gabba was full, atmosphere was great, and I'm sitting there, and, and the game starts, and it's going along, and, and um, you know, we're doing all right, not getting actually anyone on top, and then, and then all of a sudden, there's a rain delay, it starts raining just out of nowhere, and I'm sitting there, and, and in, you know, when there's a break in, in, in the cricket, everybody stands up and sort of, you know, has a bit of a stretch because, you know, you get tired sitting down for six hours. And, and so anyway, I stand up, and in front of me, about four rows down, there's this guy that 40 years ago really, really did something to make me hate him. 40 years ago. Except that, except that it wasn't him. It was just somebody who looked like him 40 years ago. I mean, he would have been, you know, like 45 then. So he would have been much older. But this was somebody who looked like him back then. 
and something just rose up. What's he doing here? But wait a minute, that's not him. And then I'm thinking, I don't hate him. Yes, I do, I do hate him, yeah. And, And I've experienced all this range of emotions. And I'm thinking, what he actually did was, in, a, in, a, in an under-17 cricket game, he was the other team's coach, and he cheated. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's actually a, a well-known Ipswich sports personality, and his house is on a, his name's on a clubhouse, not far from here. But anyway, that's another story. Anyway, this thing rises up within me, and I'm, and I'm thinking, it's not him, remember, it's just someone who looks like him. I'm thinking, oh, I'm glad he's dead, because I was sure he was dead. And I thought, no, I'm going to pull out my phone. I'm going to check if he's dead. So, so I Google his name, and I find out that he's won some over-70s bowls tournament in the last seven days. So he's very much alive. And I was disappointed. I'm bearing my soul here, folks. I'm being vulnerable, okay? Uh, how the dickens do I deal with this? You know, and, I'm, and so anyway, my process in this has always been to go back and look at the situation and look at myself in it and pastor my young self through it. So I go back and I find 16-year-old Mark, the big mullet, you know, <laughs> yeah. nine stone with his suitcase, you know. <laughs> And, and, I, and, I, and I bring in things about this man. I think, I've heard really good things about him. Maybe this was just out of character. Maybe he's just having a bad day. And I try to walk in a spirit of forgiveness. So I apply the word, the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. I apply that and I bring it to a situation where I can actually deal with it and give it some context and actually have an outcome and resolve it for myself till I'm clear, till I'm clear. So, so that's, what, that's what she is inviting here. She's inviting the scrutiny of relationship to uncover things that are there that need to be removed. Yeah? Can you see that? That's what she's inviting. That's why it's so important that we say, come on, North Wind, and we invite the scrutiny that relationship brings. You know what? People, people come to church and they have differences of opinion with other people. Instead of staying in the moment, riding through and seeing what it's all about, seeing what it's undercover, they don't. They cut and run. They leave. They move away. They, don't, they resist that person. They don't go near them. And they miss out on what God has. Okay, so the, 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 the third and final, and I better, I better pick it up a bit here. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, chapter 3. And it's uh, verse one. It says this, night after night, I'm tossing and turning on my bed of travail. Why did I let him go from me? How my heart now aches for him, but he is nowhere to be found. Have you ever experienced that with God? Have you ever experienced that he is, he's nowhere to be found? Like when you first get saved, he's everywhere. He's in everything. You know, he's speaking to you all the time. And, and, and then all of a sudden, it's sort of like, he moves away. He's actually not moved away. He's not, he's not moving away. He's just saying, come and find me. Come on, come on. Be intentional. Be deliberate. Put time into your day to come and find me. That's what he's saying. You know, my little grandson, Paddy, comes over to our place 
and he comes for a sleepover sometimes. And a few Saturday mornings ago, we'd, he'd had this sleepover and, he, and he, we, we decided we'd play hide and seek. What happened was, I actually hid in the same place. He actually told me where to hide. <laughs> I was on the couch with a blanket over me and then he would come and find me. Right? See, I wasn't hiding so he couldn't find me. I was hiding so he could find me. And 41 times he found me that morning, <laughs> hiding in the same place every time. And every time he found me with this huge smile on his face. He, his delight was to find me, and my delight was to be found. That's how it is. See, when God wants, he calls us, come and find me. Come on, come and find me. I'm, I'm, I'm hidden, just come and find me. And, and we go looking, we set aside time, we make a deliberate effort, and we may have seasons where we don't find him, where we don't feel his presence, but we're looking for him, and something develops in us, yeah? See, I've had people at a Collingwood Park location come to me and say, I'm not feeling the presence of God anymore. I've asked so-and-so over there, and he said, it's because there's sin in my life. I said, slap him. It's not like that at all. You know, God is just calling you to come, come closer. Come closer. You know, don't ever think that God deals with us on a level playing field of seasons. He doesn't. He deals with us in hiddenness, and manifestation. In manifestation, he's there. He's in our face. He's right there. That's when you get saved. That's other times of your life where God is present. He's moving. But then there are times of hiddenness where he, where he says, come on. Come on. I want, you, I want you to be intentional. I want you to be deliberate. I want you to find me. There are times when he works in where we, we need to fight. And there are times when we need to rest and let him fight. There are different seasons there are times when he'll work. He'll come miraculously and heal someone. And there are times when he'll do it by process. This one comes out by prayer and fasting. You know, Jesus cast the demon out, but if the disciples were to do it, they would have to go away and pray and fast and then come and keep praying and keep praying and keep praying until the process brought the thing out. And sometimes God works immediately. And sometimes you have to pray for someone for 10 years to dislodge an illness sometimes longer. See, and the way we discover what situation, what season we're in is to be intimate with him and hear his voice. That's how we do it. That's how it happens. So don't ever think that God deals with you in the same way all the time. It doesn't happen like that. There are seasons of hiddenness and manifestation, rest and fight, miraculous and process. If you don't know this, you can form the wrong conclusion. People form life um, outlooks on this. God withdraws, says, come find me. Oh, God's not a personal God. You know, we, ma we make a decision, we form a doctrine around it. God's not a personal God. He's distant. He's not interested in humankind. He's not. He's just saying, come and find me. Come and find me. Thank you for listening to this podcast.